So last week, uh, who was here last week? Wow, good job. Okay, so last week you remember that Dennis started a series from the book of Nehemiah, and I'm going to pick up and continue from that this week. In fact, we're going to be going through that for four weeks. And my brother-in-law makes fun of how I say Nehemiah, so I'm like a little bit paranoid about that whether I'm saying it right or wrong. But the reason why, let me just give you the reason why we're diving into Nehemiah as a church. One of the reasons is it's been something that's been prophesied over us, like in different seasons in our church life, that it seems like this coming back to like the Lord speaking Nehemiah over you, the Lord speaking Nehemiah over you, the Lord speaking Nehemiah over you, which is so one of the reasons that we like kind of dug into it ourselves to like dive into what is it that the Lord is telling us. And then the other reason is because we really feel like we're in a season of building as a church, not just we're physically building, but if you'll notice, if you were here on Vision Sunday, we're building in a lot of areas. We feel like it's time to really build certain foundations in the life of the church. And so we feel like we're in a season of building on multiple levels. And, you know, if you understand, in those times, it's so helpful to go to the scripture and be like, what can we learn from Scripture in seasons of building, right? And Ezra and Nehemiah are building books in the Old Testament. And when you understand that the nation of Israel, like Old Testament nation of Israel, was an allegory or a representation of the life of a New Testament believer. So truth revealed in the Old Testament is spiritual truth represented through a physical story. So as what we do is we go, wow, we're in a season of building. God, where have you revealed spiritual truth about that? And then we go there and we go and we look to learn, right? Is that good? So that's one of the reasons we're landing in Nehemiah, because we believe that there's some truth in there that applies to us. And so I'm going to give you a quick overview. Dennis did this last week, but I'm just going to give it to you again so that we can understand, like, I just want you to understand a little bit of the history. I want you to understand the context of the story because I'm going to pull some things from the story today rather than actually tell it. So this is an overview. So the book of Nehemiah comes about 400 years before Jesus, right? The nation of Israel is in a bad state. The nation has been destroyed. They were conquered by Babylon, and the temple had been destroyed. Solomon's temple was in ruins. And out of that, when Babylon had conquered Israel, they had deported almost everybody. So they'd come through, destroyed the city, and the people had been deported and settled in Babylon. And that's where they started to make their homes. And they were 70 years in captive in Babylon before the word came that they could return to their homeland. But out of 2 million Jews, only 50,000 chose to return, approximately. So you've got 50,000 who choose to go back to this ruined city. And and in that, under the leadership of Ezra was when they rebuilt a temple. So they had rebuilt a temple, which meant they were relaying a spiritual foundation in Israel. So they built the temple, and after that, they tried to build the walls but failed. When they came up against enemy opposition, the wall project failed, which means that they were left unprotected and vulnerable. And in fact, Nehemiah calls them, the word it says is a reproach, which means they are despised or shamed because they're basically completely vulnerable and open to anybody who would want to come and attack them, which keeps them poor. 
right? And, and so about 15 years after Ezra ends is when you come into the time of Nehemiah. So now you've had the walls have been trying to build, like it's been 75 years basically since they tried and failed to build the walls. And so you have Nehemiah who's actually a cupbearer to the king in Babylon. So he lives in Babylon. He's a cupbearer to the king. And that position, while it sounds like a servant position, while it is a servant position, is actually a position of significance. Because you're up to the level that now you exist pretty constantly in the king's company and you become a trusted advisor to the king. So Nehemiah has attained a position of significance in the king's court, but from that place, word comes to him about the state of Israel, that the walls are in ruin and the people are approached and unprotected and vulnerable. Okay? Is that with me? Yes? But here's the thing, is the... To get the fullness of the picture of Nehemiah, because what happens is Nehemiah hears about the state of Israel, chooses to step in, chooses to go and do something about it, and then we move into the journey of seeing the walls built and protection come, right? And yet the the thing that you want to do anytime that you read an Old Testament story like that is you also want to go and look and say, who was the prophet who was active at the same time? Because most of the time in the Old Testament, the way that you see leadership work is a leader is, rises up to lead something physically and a prophet is risen up to lead the people spiritually. And that's what you see active in the time of Nehemiah is you see Nehemiah like the governor and almost like a general contractor and you have Malachi the prophet. And so anything you read in Malachi is actually addressed to the people of Israel during the season and time of Nehemiah while they're building the walls. And the reason that you want to look at that is the understanding when you look at Nehemiah alone, you recognize that God is doing an amazing building project, physical building project. But when you go and look at Malachi, you realize that that's actually not the only thing that he's doing. In fact, all the word of the Lord that's coming through the prophet Malachi actually doesn't address the building of the walls at all. He's addressing the hearts of the people. And he's addressing them very strongly. In fact, you look at the book of Malachi and it starts out where the Lord is saying, you have wearied me. You have wearied me with your offerings. And he starts going after the way that they worship and the way that they offer and the way that they sacrifice. He goes after the way they treat each other. He talks about their marriages. He talks about their tithes and offerings. In fact, in Malachi 3, verse 3, he says, And this is kind of the piece that I want to bring out is the Lord talking about himself. It says, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering of righteousness. That they may offer to the Lord an offering of righteousness. And really the significance of why I want to talk about this is because in any season of building, the end goal is not just something physical to be completed. We don't want a building completed with a divided people, right? They didn't want a city completed with an unholy people. God's motivation was a royal priesthood and a holy nation. And so as the cry came up for the walls to be built, a physical project, the answer from heaven came about the spiritual condition of their hearts. 
which means that we need to be really attentive. I really believe we need to be attentive in a season where we are crying out to the Lord for the completion of a building project. I think we need to then turn our ear to what is it that you're building in us, God, as a spiritual house? What is it that you want to address in the hearts of your people? Because you want a holy people to inhabit a consecrated building, right? And you know, then when Shara Chalmers was here a couple of weeks ago, I just want to read a portion from one of the prophetic words she gave over our house. And she just said, we're in a year where the Lord is trying to bring alignment. He's trying to get our households into order. There's an invitation for holiness. There's an invitation for holiness. And so there is so much that can be highlighted from the book of Nehemiah. There, there's a lot in there. And I think what we tend to love to land on is this part of the story of Nehemiah is that they had failed for 75 years to build a wall. It was this obstacle that had never been able to be overcome. And when God landed on the project, it was finished in 52 days. Now that's a story that we exactly, there's faith on that story and we should draw from the faith in that story. But the other side of it is, and and to be honest, it, it seems like the part of the story of Nehemiah that's the most often not preached is the last two chapters. Because they go through this process of of building and facing opposition and having to do all of that. And the building gets completed. And it says when it's finished, it says when it's finished, the people rejoiced with such great joy that the joy was heard by the surrounding nations. Now, can you imagine that worship service? Like that's a worship service where there's such a cry that comes to heaven that like surrounding nations hear it. I mean, I'm like, that's the definition of revival right there. And so you, you get to that point in the story and you're like, yes, and that's where you want the story to end. But that's not where it ends. In fact, where it ends is that Nehemiah goes back to Babylon and spends some time going back there. And then when he returns, he finds that the people have completely abandoned the ways that they were set to walk in. And he challenges them. And in fact, like right at the end of Nehemiah, he's so angry that it says he contended with them. He pulled out their hair, he cursed them, and he spat on them. Because what happened? The success of the project to build the walls didn't mean that the transformation of their hearts was successful. And the bigger goal, which was the transformation of their hearts into that royal priesthood and that holy nation was incomplete. And as soon as their leader left, they fell back into their corrupt ways. So there's a story of success and there's a story of failure that wraps through the book of Nehemiah. And to me, the second goal was far more important than the first was what God wanted to shape in the hearts of the people. And so as we've been considering this and as I've been looking into it, I feel like there's been something that's been really heavy on my heart that I want to address in this family specifically. Like, hey, if we're in a season of building and God's going to address our hearts, there's something that I want to address. Something that I want to address in me. Something that I want to humbly put to you. And that's the challenge of offense. Offense that leads to judgment, offense that leads to criticism and accusation. And I wanna talk about that 
in our context as family. And, you know, there's a couple of reasons that I have concern. One of them is, is offense is more culturally normal than ever. In fact, I feel like offense is actually culturally celebrated now. It's so interesting to watch what is happening in our culture. Have you guys noticed that when people get appointed to positions of prominence or authority, that now there's people out there who are going through thoroughly through their history, thoroughly, and looking for anything that got said, any tweet that got made, any social media post that happened, any picture from when they were in college, And they are bringing some form of evidence forward, no matter if it's 20 years in the past, and posting it publicly to discredit a person and to pull them down. Have you noticed that? What's our current cultural climate towards leadership? What's our current cultural climate towards leadership? See, the Bible that commands us to honor leaders and pray for those in authority, and yet culturally we're seeing it as absolutely acceptable to curse and speak destruction and to blast opinions out all over the place. Offense is so normal in our culture that there has to be an extra layer of God that we put on our hearts towards it. In fact, in Ephesians 2, it talks about, it says the dark ruler of the earthly realm fills the atmosphere with his authority and works diligently on the hearts of unbelievers diligently in the hearts of those who are disobedient to the truth of God. Do we see that? Offense fills the atmosphere. And it becomes so normal that sometimes we don't see the way that it's seeping and affecting our lives. You know, I I wanna say one other thing. And there's a place in my heart that's been super grieved lately, to be honest. And I'm going to say this to you as a family, but I work with Dennis. I see him answer calls early in the, I don't, I'm not there, but I've been in meetings at times when he's gotten calls at 10 o'clock at night and he says, I'll be right there. I've seen, he shows up for our funerals. He's the guy who'll be there to visit you in the hospital. He's the one who you call when you're in a crisis. I've seen him pray over us as a family. I see him weep over us as a family constantly. And yet the comments, the flippant comments that I can hear, just like that, of a word of accusation that has never been checked, from a place of misunderstanding that, you did, that people didn't come to have a conversation from, breaks my heart. It is too normal in our family. And that's multiplied across in in different ways, in different places, but it is too normal for us to be able to say words that accuse and criticize somebody else without any context or without any conversation and to release a word into the atmosphere when we know, when we know that life and death is in the power of the tongue. And then there's one other scripture that's really challenged me lately. And I've put it up here in three different translations. James 5.16, because I want to bring something out of it. James 5.16, you can, James, confess your trespasses to one another. Pray for one another that you might be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. 
The passion, confess and acknowledge how you've offended one another. Pray for one another to be instantly healed for tremendous power is released through the passionate, heartfelt prayer of a godly believer. The Mirror Bible, this is one of my new translations that I'm diving into at the moment. I love to read the Bible in different translations because then you never feel like you know what something says. If you've wronged someone, talk to him about it. Pray for each other to maintain healthy fellowship. Righteousness is the fuel of effective prayer. I want to highlight something that's coming out. If you, you can see it through the combination of those three translations of one verse. Right, the idea that righteousness is the fuel of effective prayer connected is so connected to how we handle our trespasses and offenses with one another. Do you see that those two are connected? It's like, look, if there is something between you, you turn to one another, you pray for one another, you get healing because in the place of righteousness, which is the reflection of the character of Christ, prayer becomes super effective. And I just want to suggest that some of the breakthrough that we're looking for in prayer is connected to the way that we treat each other. Some of the breakthrough that we are looking for as a family and on behalf of one another is directly connected to how do you handle it when you get offended. And so I want to look at this through the example of Nehemiah in two different ways. I want to look at the example of Nehemiah of how to handle failure in somebody else. And I want to look at the example of Nehemiah about how to respond when people come against you. Because he's actually an excellent example of both. And so I'm going to start with Nehemiah chapter 1. And I just want to read a little bit to you from Nehemiah chapter 1. So it says, It came to pass in the month of Chislev, let's say October, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that one of my brethren came with men from Judah, and I asked him concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray for you now day and night for the children of Israel, your servant, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments and statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray the word that you commanded saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast off to the furthest place of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. You know, here's the deal. Nehemiah was faced with some facts. What were the facts? The facts was that there had been a massive failure to build the walls. The fact was that the people of Israel were in a condition or a state of reproach, which meant that they were in a state of shame, 
that they were a disgrace, that they were scorned by the surrounding nations. And the facts were that they had acted corruptly and had been disobedient. And what I want to ask is what is the movement of our hearts when we are faced with the facts of a failure of another? Because I tell you what would have probably been fairly normal in current Christian culture when faced with those facts, right? It would have been like, well, I know why they're failing to build the walls. It's because they're in sin. Walls can't be built by a people who are in sin. God is teaching them a lesson. They need to repent. You know, they tried and they failed and it was because the Lord was opposing them because there's something wrong with them. Well, it's because they have a terrible leadership model. And it's so easy for us to stand at a distance and see sin and failure and go, well, I suppose there's something wrong with you, right? I mean, let's, yes? And that's on the level when we see somebody's failure at a distance. What's the whole nother level when somebody's failure affects us personally? When I get hurt because of a poor choice that somebody made, or when I get disappointed because I expected something of somebody and they didn't deliver, What becomes the normal movement of our heart in those moments? And can I tell you what I see most often as normal? Honestly, both in my life and currently normal Christian culture is we take the facts, we surround it with a negative narrative, we spiritualize it, and we call it discernment. I can discern why you're not building the walls. Oh yeah, I can discern why you failed, because you're in sin. God wants to deal with the sin of your hearts, right? But, and then what we begin to do is we go tell others because we're so spiritual. Oh, we need to pray for them. Oh goodness. You know, they're in reproach and there's all this shame on them. And, and you know, it's because this thing is wrong with them and God wants to break through. Oh, man, guys, did you hear? Did you hear about the state of Jerusalem? How embarrassing. So glad that's not us. But the problem is what it does is it creates an us and a them. Right? There's them out there who've done something wrong, and there's me over here who have now separated myself and removed myself from that situation. And you know, I, I've told this story here before, but it's an exercise that I do when I, I, I teach a few times a year in the, the YWAM school in Kona. And what I do is I tell, the, I tell them one of my own stories. And, and I'll tell you it again here. Is there was a day that I came to church and I had a really, really good, and I was out in the hallway out there and I had a really good friend who came in, like one of those that you know well enough that you can read small things. And she came walking in the door and I went to say hi and she looked away and walked straight past me. Like completely avoided eye contact with me and blitzed right past you're just like, okay. And then I, so then you're like a little more. And so I come in and had a couple of moments where I tried to like, like make contact. 
And every single time there was this real obvious avoidance. And so by the time I left church that day, I'm like, oh my goodness, she's mad at me. I don't know if men do this. This is like some insight into a female brain. But by the time that the day ended, I'm like, oh my goodness, she's mad at me. I've done something wrong and I don't even know what it is. And by halfway through the afternoon, I am mad. I am like, if I have done something that upsets you, like we are good enough friends that you should have told me. Like this whole, like you avoid me and do all of this, like I don't think so. Like we are better friends than that. Well, apparently I thought we are, but if that's how you're gonna choose to treat me, then like we're done here, right? I mean, that's how far that narrative went. And so thankfully I like pulled myself, like talked myself through and was like, I need to go and talk to her. So I showed up at her house and was like, and honestly, I went to show up at her house and I knew to ask for understanding, but my plan was to tell her what was wrong with her. Like I knew that I was gonna ask the questions, but the conclusion in my mind was already that's so unacceptable that you would treat me like that if you were mad at me. And yet I showed up at her house and I'm like, so what was going on? I come to find out that she had something that was going on in her life that was really hard in that moment and she purposefully avoided eye contact because she knew that if she was honest with me in that moment, she would fall apart in church and she didn't want to. And it's this stunning moment of like the narrative that I created that was completely not true, right? The only fact that I had in that situation was that she had clearly avoided me at church. The narrative that took off from there was all mine, all my creation. And so there was this exercise that I do with people that I tell that story and then I say, I want you to think of the last time that somebody upset you. You can do this now if you want to. I want you to think of the last time that you ended up frustrated or hurt or disappointed by somebody. And then I want you to think, what is the narrative? Like there's the facts of the situation and I want you to separate out what the facts of the situation are and then what the narrative is that you created around that situation. In the context of the classroom, I get out a whiteboard marker and I start writing it up on the whiteboard. And I say, tell me, tell me, what are the narratives that you created? And the things that I get back are, they don't care about me, they don't love me, there is something wrong with them, this person is a narcissist. And I can fill a whole whiteboard and by the time we get done, I underline every single they. Every single narrative is they, and every single narrative is negative. And so what we're trying to do is bring out into the open the tendency of the movement of our heart when somebody does something that upsets us is that we take off on a they-focused negative narrative. We immediately went us and them, my goal was self-protection and there is something wrong with you. And then I asked them, okay, based on this narrative, how did you behave? Based on this narrative, what behavior then came out of your life? And they're like, oh. Like, let's be honest. And you start getting like, well, actually, I started gossiping. Well, I'm like, let's take that up a level. Actually, you started slandering. Actually, I cut them out of my life. Actually, I cut off relationship, or I withdrew, or I created distance, or I started spreading things. 
And the whole goal of the exercise is to say, if we tolerate a narrative of accusation, if we tolerate an us and them narrative in our head, we will excuse and justify ungodly, unloving, sinful behavior in our own life. And we won't even see it because it goes unchallenged because they are the problem. You know, there's a quote that Bill Johnson says that I love where he says, on many issues, the enemy does not care about your opinion as long as you leave the character of Christ to defend it. On many issues, the enemy does not care about what your opinion is as long as you leave the character of Christ to defend it. Which means that you can be right in your facts and completely wrong in your response. You can be right in your facts and completely wrong in your response because your job is to stay aware of your character. You know, so often these type of things, the failure of another, so often actually begins to reveal a flaw in me. You know, I want to read to you from James 4.11 from two different translations. Dear friends, as part of God's family, never speak against another family member. For when you slander a brother or sister, you violate God's law of love. And your duty is not to make yourself a judge of the law of love by saying it doesn't apply to you, but your duty is to obey it. Gossip is out. To badmouth and point your finger at your brother is to insult the law of liberty. You put yourself up as a law enforcer and thereby assume that you are above scrutiny. I want just to absorb that for a minute. When we speak against another family member, it is as if saying the law of love does not apply to me. We put ourselves in a place of assuming that we're above scrutiny. Ouch. And out of that, I want to directly contrast the response of Nehemiah. Because I want you to understand, Nehemiah is in a different country. He's in Babylon. Nehemiah, a righteous man who has attained a position of significance as advisor to the king, who would have every reason to say us and them. Every reason to be like, oh, those foolish people. You know what? But instead, you look at how Nehemiah responds and he turns and he fasts and he prays and he cries out to God and he says, we confess the sins of the children of Israel which we have sinned against you. We, both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted corruptly. He didn't set himself outside the law of liberty. He didn't separate himself. He saw himself. And that is the first thing that we have to remember in a moment where somebody else has legitimately failed and it's hurt or offended us, especially if it's affected us, that we don't separate ourselves. Humility sees ourselves. Because there's this thing that understands that the grace that you are under is the grace that I am under. 
I cannot apply a different standard to your life that I demand for mine. Because we understand that I myself am before the Lord asking for grace to cover my sin and my failure. And as soon as I forget that, I set myself outside of what's called the law of love. And I say I am now no longer under it. I sit above it or outside of it. And so there's this place of humility that Nehemiah enters into where he identifies the same tendency in himself and he comes before the Lord with a cry of his heart that says, we, we have a problem here. And then the next thing he does is he begins to press into the promises of God. He says, God, I remember what you've said. I remember what you said. These are your promises, God. And as he does that, there's this faith that begins to get released for a redemptive solution. And then he's moved to action. And you'll notice that instead of separating himself and accusing and judging and criticizing, Nehemiah weeps before the Lord and then takes on the assignment to move redemptively. And later he talks about the thing that God laid on his heart to do. And there's redemption that came through a person who was willing to humble himself, identify with himself, and then go move redemptively to do something about it. And there's this challenge. There's this challenge to us through that. And this honest place of what What happens in my heart when the people around me fail? Because the character of Christ will move me towards redemption. The character of Christ inside of me will cause me to come before him in prayer, will cause me to identify myself in humility, and then will cause me to cry out for what does redemption look like? And I understand that this is going to look different. Like every situation is different. I understand that there's like not necessarily this one prescribed path, but at the very least, what is our prayer life in that moment? Because there is so much revealed in your prayer life in that moment from the place of hurt, from the place of offense. And there is a big difference between the prayer of, God, would you get him? God, I'm gonna come before you and I'm going to accuse them to you and I'm going to try and get you to agree with me about what's wrong with them. Versus like we come back in the humility of understanding man, God in them, God in me. All of us drawing on grace. Can I bless them? Can I bless them? Can I still see the good that God is trying to develop in them? You know, criticism and accusation are not the character of Christ. They are a character of another. And our job is to stay very, very, very aware of what character is getting formed inside of me. And so I just, I want to pause for a second. I want to talk about this second piece, but I just want to pause for a second and allow a moment for God to examine our hearts. You just want to close your eyes. 
I just want you to, like in your own way, ask the Lord, is there any place that offense is alive in me? Is there any place that I've partnered with criticism, judgment, or accusation? And if there is, if he brings something to mind, you just take a minute and repent. And ask God to to release the redemptive nature of his character inside of you. Begin to give you a heart for that person. Because I want to talk about one more thing. I want to talk about the example of Nehemiah for when people come against you. And if we follow the story, so I started in chapter one, where word comes to Nehemiah. The story for the next few chapters is he goes before the king, and the king gives him permission and resources to go and build the walls. So he goes to Jerusalem and he gets the supplies and he rallies the people and they start building and enemies get upset and they come against them, which is why you get that picture of them building with tools in one hand and a sword in the other and the whole like, hey, fight for your family. They station them in family units and they go through all of that. And in 52 days, the wall is complete, right? And this picks up right after, Nehemiah chapter 6 is right after the wall has been complete. And it says, now it happened when Sambalat Tobiah Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it, though at the time I had not hung the doors and the gates. And Sambalat and Geshem sent to me saying, come let us meet together among the villages in the plains of Ono. Ono. But they thought to do me harm. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave and go down to you? But they sent the message to me four times, and I answered them in the same manner. Then Sambalat sent his servant to me as before the fifth time with an open letter in his hand, and it was written, It is reported amongst the nations, and Geshem says that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king. And you have appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king in Babylon. So come, therefore, let us consult together. Then I sent to them saying, no such things as you say are being done, you invent them in your own heart, for they were trying to make us afraid, saying their hands will be weakened in the work and it will not be done. Now therefore God, strengthen my hands. Afterwards I came to the house of Shib something, the son of Delilah, the son of somebody else, who was a secret informer, and he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. Indeed at night they will come to kill you. And I said, should such a man as me flee? And who is there such as I would go into the temple to save my life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that God had not sent them at all, but that he had pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. For this reason he was hired, that I should be afraid and act that way in sin so that they might have an evil report and that they might reproach me. My God, remember them according to their works. The prophetess and the rest of the prophets who would have made me afraid. And, and I love this story because the reality is, the reality is, is that accusation will come. You know, who here has ever felt misunderstood and accused? 
like, no, wave your hand at me. I just want to see, is there anybody in this room who has felt exempt from that? Right? Like, there is places in your life, and sometimes, honestly, it's because your imperfection showed. Sometimes it's like in the context of family, you just can't be perfect all the time. And somewhere, sooner or later, somebody's going to see something that's less than pretty. Sorry. Sometimes it is because you had a genuine place of sin or failure and, and, and that got exposed and it came out into the light. Sometimes it just is that you were doing a great work and the enemy came against you. And the way that the enemy would come against you is to use accusation to try and distract you, right? Right? But the reality is, is that we are all going to face some level of challenge on that front. And the temptation when that happens, there's this temptation that comes when it happens, is first of all, here's what the enemy is saying, come down here, meet me in the valley of oh no. Can I tell you that when there's an oh no that's happening in your life, that's when you don't want to go and meet with anybody except for the Lord. Because the valley of oh no is saying, come down here and meet me at my level. And there is such a temptation to get drawn into this world of accusation of like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that they're saying this about me. This is so hurtful and, and, and so scary and, and, and it's so wrong. And it wants to draw us off focus. Or the other thing that happens is I begin to want to self-protect. Here, here's, here's why I need to tell you that what you say and think about me is wrong. And we want to hide. Like, look at this temptation that comes against Nehemiah. Go quick, go into the temple and hide. And then the other thing that tends to want to happen is, is he, he says he perceives that they were trying to make him afraid. And he identified that if he had chosen to get afraid and shrink his life because of fear, because fear will always cause you to shrink your life, and I've seen it happen, is that people start a great work and they feel misunderstood or somewhere along the way they get accused or somewhere along the way. Like, can I tell you, usually when you're a visionary, people can't see what you see. You see it first. And sometimes people aren't going to see it until it's actually happening out of your life. But you start going after something and because people don't understand it, you start getting a like, who do they think they are? Well, here's why I can tell you that this isn't going to work. And that accusation begins to hurt so much that I see sometimes people shrink their lives back and say, I'm not going to do that because it hurts too much. The accusation is too much. People don't believe in you enough. And they can't, like, unable to sustain the vision in the place of accusation because they gave into fear. And here's what I want to tell you is the goal of the enemy is that the sin of somebody else would produce sin in you. The goal of the enemy is that the sin of somebody else would produce sin in you by drawing you into the planes of accusation or by causing you to shrink your life back and run and hide in fear. And I get it. Like when accusation comes, there's like, oh man, the temptation, that's so wrong about me. 
and it's so not fair, and I can't believe that they would do and say that. Are they not a Christian? Do they not believe the Bible? Can they not see I'm doing a righteous work for God? How about they look at the log in their own eye before they try and see a speck in mine? And yet, who loses? Everybody loses and I lose. I lose because I get shifted off course from the vision and focus for my life. I lose because I get drawn into the planes of accusation and down into that level. I lose when my mission becomes more about self-protection than the great work that I'm going after. And I love the response of Nehemiah. Accusation comes five times. And it's like he looks at it. I'm doing a great work. I will not come down. When you think about that, like, I refuse to entertain it. I refuse to get drawn in by it. I refuse to even respond to it. You see it for what it is. I will not come down. And then I love the, the other one, when it's like, now, that was accusation from the outside. Then a prophet rises up from the inside and says, hey, they're coming to kill you. We better go inside the temple. And I love his response then. Shall a man such as I flee? Shall a man such as I give in to fear? You know, and there is a, in Ephesians 6:12, I love this verse. People are not the enemy. To target one another is to engage the wrong combat. People are not the enemy. To target one another is to engage the wrong combat. And there's this place that happens that we understand, like this, this discernment that comes that we understand who the enemy actually is in the situation. And it's not the other person. Because the enemy, his goal would be to get you so focused on the other person and the wrong that they have done against you that you don't even see his work in the middle of it. And that he's the one perpetuating accusation and division. But as soon as you recognize and can separate the difference between the actual enemy and the person, there's that boundary line that comes up in your life that says, I shall not go there. And so I think there's this determination that we have to get shaped in our hearts that says, I will not get drawn off focus and I will not get drawn into sin. Even when something comes against me, even when it's really not fair, even when I really expected something better, I will not get drawn off focus and I will not get drawn into sin. And Nehemiah simply turns to the Lord and says, God, you remember this. You remember this. They're trying to rob me of strength. I give this to you. You strengthen my hands. 
And one of the things that I feel like we have to be really careful and on guard against is, is reciprocal offense or reciprocal accusation. You know, in the place where an accusation has come against you, one of the easiest things that we can do is pick up an accusation in return because we know it's wrong. And we get so focused on the wrong perpetuated by somebody else that once again we lose sight of like, well, you're offended at me and now I'm offended at you. So now we're all offended together. Our attention always has to stay in the response of our hearts. And to me, I visualize it best by visualizing like, almost like a brave heart response in Nehemiah. Like this strength that comes up from the inside and this determination, shall a man like me sin? And I want that for my own life. I want that for the people of God that when these things come and they're like, hey, come over here into the valley of, oh no. And that there's this thing that rises up in my heart that sees it for what it is, that wants to cause me to sin, that wants to distract me and get me on focus, that wants me to get me to run and hide anything that would lose sight from the thing that I'm building my life towards. And that this passion would come up inside me and say, should somebody like me sin? I don't think so. I will not go there. And then we have that heart like Nehemiah that goes, God, strengthen my hands. Help me to move redemptively. So once again, the question is, is the character of Christ being formed inside of me? And so I just want us to pause for a second, again, before the Lord, and just ask him, how about you just close your eyes? God, is there any place that I've picked up a reciprocal offense or accusation? Is there anything I'm holding onto against somebody who accused me? Is there any place I've shrunk my life back or given into fear because of accusation that come against me. And if so, once again, if anything comes to mind, repent. Let go of offense, forgive. And God, again, I just ask that you would shape the character of Christ inside of each one of us. God, I ask for the heart and the passion of Nehemiah that doesn't separate himself, the humility to come and to stay under grace, who will not separate himself in accusation, and the boundary lines and the strength of his life that says, I shall not flee. And no, I will not go. And that cannot get drawn into offense and accusation. God, I ask that that would be the strength that rises up inside of every single one of us. And I ask that this family would be an offense-free zone. I ask that accusation and criticism would die in this environment and that we would be a people who love and champion one another and seek for the redemptive work in Christ inside of one another.
In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, so we have a ministry team that are ready to come pray for you. If you want prayer for anything, I encourage you to get that. Otherwise, have a great week, and we'll see you later.